And welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Jeffrey Groman. Hey, Jack, how are you doing today? Doing all right. We also have Caleb Fornari. I'm always worried I'm going to say your name wrong, man. Yeah, sorry. It's a little uh, it's a little long, but uh, you got it right. So good job. It's all good. So uh, yeah, you're our newest panelist. Do you want to just remind people who you are? It's been a little bit since we had you on. Sure, yeah. So my name is Caleb Fornari. I'm the CTO and founder of the Startups Group. Uh, we do DevOps as a service and kind of flexible, uh, flexible DevOps for a small and medium-sized company. Awesome. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. All right. Well, we were talking before the show about sort of package security. I'm trying to think of the right terms here for this because, yeah, you were reading a little about this, Jeffrey. And why don't you go ahead and give us the intro since you brought this up and then we can kind of dive in. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I and I think it's a topic that can take us in, in so many different directions because you know my my mindset is always more security focused, but I also realize that there's so much more to this story that's becomes, you know, that they can really just sort of go in different directions. So, without I guess further ado, it's just so there was a great um, a really interesting story in Median, uh, sorry, Medium.com by Alex Burson. And he talks about, you know, he's, so he's, it's sort of an interesting story by itself in that, you know, he's one of these bug bounty type folks that are out there. A lot of, uh, you know, security researchers make their living off of bug bounties, right? So, you know, just a quick intro to that world. uh, You got big tech companies like PayPal and Apple and Google and others that will pay you specific amounts of money, depending on what bugs you find, you know, in their applications, their code, their products, et cetera. For them, it's a great way to stay on top of, you know, what what might be lurking out there and really sort of builds that that bond with those security researchers. So he started to do some, you know, I guess some, some research, some, some sort of playing around and looking at, you know, I think it was like three different languages, whether it was Ruby, Python, or Node. And he was looking at the package managers that are associated with each one. So you've got Pepper, you've got Ruby Gems, you've got NPM. And he's looking at, hey, you know, here's this sort of interesting phenomenon where you could have your own internal code base inside a company that on the one hand may have its own packages that you build or your own libraries that you host internally, but some of them you're also probably pulling down from open source repositories. And what he found was that sometimes you get this sort of information leakage type of a situation where, you know, you can look at 
code and or you can look at snippets or you can get he had other various ways of sort of finding this but what he saw was that there were these references to packages that didn't necessarily exist within the public repositories and so what he found is well what happens if i create a public repository you know or a public package within a repository that has that same naming convention that this mm-hmm. you know company x uses you know would their code base look to the public repository first, try to pull it down, incorporate it into their code, and then away you go because you've now got your malicious code, possibly malicious code, running in some company's environment. Now, for the purposes of this article, he doesn't actually write any malicious code, Just to, I guess just to be clear there. What he's basically doing is writing something akin to like, hello world, or you know, I think what he did was, I think he actually had it do like a DNS query back to a DNS server that he owned. So a domain and DNS server he owned. So it was really sort of not going to be blocked and he could really get a pretty good handle on, hey, is is, uh, is this company, is their uh, internal software actually pulling down, you know, these packages and and running his code in a very non-malicious, right, very innocuous way. And he could actually go back to them and say, hey, listen, I got this DNS ping. I can see that, you know, code off of your machines and here's the IP address that it ran from, you know, and, and timestamp or whatever else, whatever. You know, he pulled like three or four different pieces of metadata around that system. So nothing sensitive, but, you know, enough to sort of prove the point. And he made, you know, something like $100,000 off of, you know, a couple of these, a couple of these things that he found. And it just sort of, you know, I think blows up the story of, wow, that's really interesting on the one hand and and a little bit scary on the other hand. But again, I, I was looking at it from the security standpoint, but I thought you guys would have an interesting take when you think about it, maybe from also like code hygiene and, and sort of other facets that aren't necessarily security, you know, security focused. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely interesting. Go ahead, Caleb. I know from the, like the node world, you know, there are some solutions, right, to these types of things. And it's not only the issue that, that you described, Jeffrey, around like what that sounds like essentially is a precedence bug where code is reaching out publicly and pulling packages first, and then if it doesn't find them publicly, it's getting the, the private packages. But if you just name a public package the same name, then it's going to pull that down, right? There's a bunch of other possibilities, right? There's there's uh, possibilities for malicious code to be inserted in a package, either getting by the maintainers of like an open source project or somebody who takes over the project. You know, a few years ago, they found at least with like NPM, somebody could delete a package. Anyone else could come in and create a new package with the same name whatever they wanted in that package. So there's you know a bunch of different sort of entry points there. And it is really interesting to talk about this from a security versus developers versus like DevOps perspective, I think, because that's always kind of at odds with, you know, or those those groups are always kind of at odds with each other uh, when it comes to like convenience for developers versus security versus, you know, DevOps maybe concerns around automating things and making things quick and, and stable and those types of things. So Really, really interesting perspective. I think, you know, definitely some interesting stuff to unpack there. From a security perspective, you know, do you have any sort of mitigations that you usually uh, use or recommend to mitigate some of these types of attacks? I think that's, that's an interesting question, right? Because it, it, that's also a little bit tough, right? So, you know, you hit on on one of the one of the uh, issues, which is like that, that sort of, you know, codependency or, or you know, precedence where, you know, sometimes that maybe that's something that you can sort of do as a first step is make sure that, hey, anything that's hosted internally, make sure that, you know, just make sure that your package manager is only looking at internal systems first. And 
that sort of thing. That that could be your your first line of defense. And I suppose that you know, from the even from the DevOps perspective, you probably want to be tracking that, right? You want to make sure that you're pulling the package that you think you're pulling. Right? That again, to mm-hmm. me, seems like that's just you know proper. I don't know proper etiquette or hygiene or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> but you know, but beyond that, there are a lot of you know. Unfortunately, in the security world, the response typically is, hey, let's build a new company and a new product and let's sell it. And, you know, we're going to just sell more tools and more technologies and, and all that. And there are a lot of companies that built tools around, you know, sort of the, this idea of understanding what's what's lying behind the scenes of, of the code base that you're using, right? So it's, you know, you can sort of take apart a piece of code and say, hey, this is what your code is actually built on. Were you aware of that? And and you know, and Caleb, I think you're hitting on this too, that there's a lot of different, like this is sort of just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, for example, you know, remember way back when, only a few years ago, where if you were building your applications on Apache Struts, there was like, it was like in one year, I want to say it was like 2017, 2016, something like that. There was like four or five remote code executable vulnerabilities that came out on Struts in like, in a period of like a few months. It was like ridiculous. And so everyone is sort of trying to figure out from a code composition standpoint, like, wait a second, how my how many of my Java applications are actually built on struts? I don't even know because this is legacy code. It's been around for a long time. Who knows what, you know, two features in the whole code base are using struts, but it's still in there and we don't really know about it. So, you know, there's this idea of like, you know, just understanding what the code composition is. And I think that that's one of the ways that we've seen you know, again, from the technology or tools or automation standpoint, trying to trying to figure out what libraries you've built your code on. But I don't think there really is a silver bullet. I don't think there's an easy way to sort of say, oh, yeah, we can solve this problem just by, you know, flipping the, the light switch or, or something like that. I, I think this is a tough one. Well, I, I have something to throw at you, too. And that is, if you've ever gone and actually tried to build, say, a React web app, right? or even a Ruby on Rails app, right? You just do the bundle install or you do your NPM install and 